Morning, everyone. I realize I never checked my camera spot. Am I good here? Okay, good. <laughs> um, for those of you that are joining us, uh, our church family has been in a series studying the attributes of God. And um, when I was working out the schedule, I knew Easter was here, and I was trying to figure out whether we take a break from the schedule to do a special Easter sermon or stay with the attributes. And as it turns out, the attributes that fall on this week as we're going through this book by A.W. Tozer is justice and mercy. And I thought, those are good attributes for Easter. And so we're continuing in our series on the attributes of God with two attributes that I think you will find are fitting uh, for us to contemplate at Easter. And as we've been studying the attributes of God, part of what we've been studying has been how the, the many and various attributes of God become reconciled or are in harmony with each other. In other words, the, the attributes of God are not in conflict. You, even though we talk about God having different attributes or different characteristics, God is wholly consistent and not divided. God's never in disagreement with himself. He's not conflicted. There's no aspect of his being that can be separated or no aspect of his being that can be opposed to the other. Um, no attribute of God can disqualify or nullify another attribute. There's, there's no parts to God, in other words. Now, that fact in itself, even what I just described there, is another attribute of God. In fact, if you corner a theologian and ask them about divine simplicity, you will make their day, and you will get nothing else done for the rest of that day. Um, divine simplicity means that the being of God is identical to the attributes of God. We think of them as separate attributes, but they are collectively the simple or single identity or essence of God. The attributes are not assembled together so that God is made up of them as parts, but God's existence establishes the attributes as we perceive them. They coexist perfectly in the essence of God. And I know that that makes your head hurt a little bit, and you'll be glad to know that that is not the attribute that we're talking about today. But it's important, and I start with that, because if we don't keep divine simplicity in mind, if we try to think about God's attributes as if they're like our attributes, which can be separated from ourselves and can be at odds with each other, then we'll get confused about God and his attributes, thinking that he's just somehow a different version of us, and he's not like us at all. And we might think that his attributes can be in conflict the way that ours can. And there's a couple of these attributes of God that seem the most difficult for us to reconcile that bring us directly to Easter, right to the cross of Jesus, in order to see how God expresses them perfectly and without conflict. And it brings us to his resurrection to assure us that they are reconciled. And those two attributes, of course, are the justice of God and the mercy of God. Or you might even say the love of God and the wrath of God. How will God be proven to be just and at the same time be proven to be merciful? How will God rightly express his anger at sin and at the exact same time his love towards the sinners? It seems impossible that they can coexist without one giving way to the other. It seems like the two can't both happen at the same time. In the courtrooms of earth, let alone heaven, the judge can either distribute justice or the judge can show mercy. 
The criminal will either be punished or the criminal will be pardoned. Justice will prevail or mercy will prevail. But as we just talked about in the divine simplicity of God, both of God's attributes, all of God's attributes prevail and neither is diminished. And so justice and mercy must be equally expressed. Now, this is pretty important that we reconcile this. You might say, well, who cares? It doesn't really matter. But the problem is, is that in the courtroom, we are the criminal. And you might think, and many sort of religious people think often, hey, it's no problem because I read that God is love and God is mercy. And so God will be merciful to me. And some clever sinners might even say God has to be merciful to me because I heard Pastor Paul say that God cannot deny his own attributes. And so therefore, God is obligated. If God is love, he cannot do me any harm. He's obligated to do well to me, so I have nothing to fear. Now, let me just say that that kind of thinking is why you should not represent yourself in court. As William de Bretagne famously wrote, he that will be his own lawyer is sure to have a fool for his client. The flaw in the argument, of course, is that Scripture affirms God is equally just as God is merciful. Everyone gets passionate about holding God accountable to his attribute of mercy. I rarely hear anyone passionately demanding that God stay true to his attribute of justice, especially when it comes to themselves. But we should be as concerned that God be found just as we are concerned that he be found merciful. For if God was to be found unjust, it would be as tragic as him being found unmerciful. And so all of that to say we really need a God who expresses justice and mercy perfectly. A God who can be found absolutely trustworthy in satisfying his justice and also absolutely gracious and loving in offering his mercy. And that reality of who we need God to be brings us straight to Easter, to the cross of Jesus Christ, and to his resurrection, where the justice of God is fully satisfied and the mercy of God is perfectly expressed. Let me just pray before we open up God's word and consider these attributes. Father God, we are collectively, as your people, seeking to know you better. And you have shown who you are through your word, through your written word, and through the living word of your son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we're looking into your written word and perceiving the personal word of Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, that our eyes would be opened and our hearts would be opened to understand what you are communicating to us. Because you are not keeping yourself hidden. You're not hiding yourself away. You are talking to us. You are speaking to us. You have shown yourself to us that we might comprehend you and come to know you and even be saved by you to become your children. So we pray that would take place even this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at the justice and mercy of God at the cross to begin with. What is transpiring at the cross and and what purpose does the resurrection serve as it relates to these attributes of God? Well, we're going to look briefly today and a couple of important texts in the letter to the Romans, where the Apostle Paul is, is seeking to untangle a little bit for us. Uh, he's seeking to tease out this mystery and beauty of a God who is both perfect in expressing justice and mercy without compromise or conflict. And as I read these texts, I want you to pay attention to the juxtaposition in these verses between love and wrath and between mercy and justice. 
And understand that the, the Bible is not avoiding these tensions that exist in our understanding of the attributes of God. In fact, the Bible is working very hard to explain these tensions to us. And our first text is Romans 5, 8 to 10, which reads this way. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Couldn't even get through one sentence without God loving us and being angry at the same time. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life or by his resurrection. And so here in Romans, Paul is trying to tease out the love and the wrath of God, the justice of God, that we must be justified, and the mercy of God, and that it is done by his Son. We gather from this text that God does love us, but we are also sinners. And if that situation was to persist, then then we would not be justified. Uh, God would not be justified, or God would not be considered just if he were to overlook our sin. And that's a problem, not only for us, but it kind of, it's a weird way to say it, but it's a problem for God, because God has to be found just, but he has a creation full of sinners. How am I going to be found just, but still care for and love my creation? Romans 3, 4 declares that God will prevail when he is judged, and he will be found just. So it would run counter to God's own established justice if he simply ignored our sin and pretended it didn't happen. If God rewarded criminals rather than punishing them, we would never trust him even as a local county judge, let alone as judge of the universe. Sin demands a penalty, not because justice is a value that is somehow higher than God that he must honor, but because God is justice. And as we learned last week, he cannot deny himself. He's bound only to himself. And because he is just, justice must prevail. But God has an answer to his problem. God has a solution to his wrath at sin and his perfect love for his people. In fact, it's better to say that God is the answer to his own problem. The answer to God's justice is found in his mercy. According to his justice, God will judge sin. According to his mercy, he is going to permit that judgment to fall upon himself for his own satisfaction. He's got an answer. Sin will be judged. The penalty will be paid. I will be satisfied. And I'll do it by taking the penalty myself. God will do it. Why does God do it? Well, God does it because it would also be unjust for God to place the consequences of our sin against him onto the shoulders of anyone but himself. If, if someone else, even someone specially created, a special angel or a special creature that God created who was innocent of my sin, God sent to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, that would be unjust. And so, Someone else can't pay the penalty for my sin unless that person is God. God is the one that we've sinned against. God is the one who has to bear the weight of our harm against him. And as the one who is offended, God has the right to forgive. God has the right to choose for himself to bear the burden and wound that my sin causes. Let me help you understand this. If If you back into my car in the parking lot, and it's my car, it's costing me to fix it, 
it's my prerogative, it's my ability to say, I'll cover that cost. I mean, it would be unjust if I said, Pete Curry has to pay for it, that would be bad. That would be not me being fair, right? Or I could be just and I could say, you need to pay for it, that would be justice. But there's also, totally fine, nothing wrong with me saying, you've wounded me, you've cost me, you've caused me harm, you've, you've, there's a penalty that needs to be paid, the car needs to be fixed. But because the sin is against me, because the offense is against me, I'm in my right, it's my prerogative to be merciful, to say, I'll bear the cost. You don't have to bear it. That's what God has done. God has said, justice will be done, the price will be paid, but I will pay the price. I'll pay the price that your harm causes. As the Bible puts it, God gets to be both the just and the one who justifies. Let's look at Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God wants it all. I'm going to be just, and I'm going to be the one who justifies. I'm going to show mercy, and I'm going to show mercy because it's going to be me who bears the penalty. God gets all the glory. God is just and the justifier. God fulfills both ends of his need for justice, and him fulfilling both ends of his need for justice is his mercy. That the proper and sufficient penalty for sin is paid is perfect justice. That God has paid the penalty by his son Jesus is perfect mercy. And this is not a problem for the cross work of Jesus. By Jesus on the cross, God gets to be God exactly as he is, both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Now, you may be thinking that I'm just calling this cross work of Jesus the mercy of God because it happens for us. Is it really the accomplishment of God's mercy? Is, is God in these texts really telling us that this is my mercy towards you? Well, actually, he does. Right here in Romans three twenty-three to 26, God literally spells out for us in his word that the work that Jesus is going to do on the cross is the expression of my mercy. And you should rightly ask, where am I getting that from? Well, you may have noticed this fancy word propitiation. It's an odd word. It's a very seldom used word. It's a barely understood word, but it's a perfect word that the Holy Spirit has given the Apostle Paul to use here. And it's in the unpacking of this word that we understand the mercy of God in his justice. The Greek word for propitiation is hilasterion. And it might be translated in your Bible, the atoning sacrifice, that uh, Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. But what it literally means, hilasterion, is the Greek word that would be used for the lid or the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, who knows what the covering of the Ark of the Covenant is called? Anybody know? You're right. It's the mercy seat. See, this text is talking about the mercy of God. The mercy seat. You got to go back a little bit into Exodus and Leviticus to see what Paul is pointing at when he uses this word, hilasterion or propitiation, satisfaction. 
has a lot of meaning. Exodus 25, 17 to 21 is where you'll see a lot of detail about how Israel was meant to make the mercy seat out of pure gold and, and put golden angels on either end of it with their wings spread out over the seat. And the law of God was put into the Ark of the Covenant under the seat of mercy. And of course, nobody sat there. That was not a seat for any person to sit in. The mercy seat was the location from which God alone would speak to Moses and to the high priest. And so that's the mercy seat, sitting on the ark, covering the law, the angels overshadowing the seat. It was the place where God would dwell and speak to his high priests. And, and then in Leviticus chapter 16, if you continue on, God tells Moses that the sins of Aaron and the people are so great that they should not even enter into the sight of him. The ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, divided by a curtain, so that you could not go into the presence of God at the mercy seat. And God explains in Leviticus 16 all the instruction that there's really only one way to enter into his presence at the mercy seat without judgment. He says that Aaron, the high priest, has to prepare a sin offering and a burnt offering of rams and goats. And he has to atone for his own sins and the sins of his family. And he has to bring the two goats and put them at the entrance of the meeting house. And placing the sins of the people on one goat, he releases that goat into the wilderness to carry off the sin. And then when he was ceremonially clean, he could put on then the priestly garments to signify to God his temporary cleanliness, and he's almost ready to enter. Not yet, though. Then he has to get a big metal bowl of burning coals and load it up with a very specific incense so that it made a big cloud of smoke, and he would stay in the smoke as he entered into the Holy of Holies where the seat was and let the smoke cover the area of the mercy seat so that he could not see the presence of God. And he's almost done. He also had to bring the blood of the bull from the sin offering and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. In the cloud there ahead of him is God in the mercy seat, and he's sprinkling the blood of the sin offering onto the seat that covered the legal demands of the law that sat beneath the seat and covered the sins of the people in the presence of God. Then and only then could the high priest and only the high priest enter into the presence of God. And that's what hysterion means. That's what propitiation means. Of course, it's not an accident that this is the word that's used here. It's a precisely chosen word, propitiation. The propitiation of Jesus accomplishes for eternity and for all who believe what the priestly law was only able to do temporarily for one man at one time. Jesus' work on the cross is literally a replacement of the mercy seat, Paul is saying, by which we are able to enter into the presence of God without the blood of bulls and goats and incense and priestly robes and smoke and incense. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, propitiated our sins, we have the mercy seat covered for us. Propitiation is the mercy of God to accomplish his justice by the blood of Jesus. Or you can say it the other way around. Propitiation is the justice of God to accomplish his mercy by the blood of Jesus. This is the whole point. At the cross, in the work of Jesus on the cross, justice and mercy meet perfectly. Not in the sacrifices of the temple, not at the Ark of the Covenant, which were mere shadows of what was to come, but in the cross work of Jesus and the blood of the new covenant. 
And if God's justice and mercy meet perfectly at the cross, then why the resurrection? Well, what's the resurrection signify in this? And Paul will explain it sort of this way. The, the resurrection is like taking delivery of the justice and mercy that occurred on the cross. Right? God forbear our sins, and then at this time he did this. Like, like, it's like there's a gift coming, but you don't have it yet. There's a check that's in the mail, but the check isn't in your hands. And that's sort of how the whole universe felt for three days. Three real days in history, the universe held its breath. All the Old Testament preparation, all the prophets foreshadowing of what was to come, the promises that were made in the scripture, in the Old Testament, and then that were realized in Jesus, the anticipation of the disciples, and then the event, the trial, the beating, the rejection, the bearing of our sins on the cross, the tomb, the stone, sealed and dark and done, and three days of a universe holding its breath. And the question is, is the justice of God going to be fully satisfied by the work of the Son? Will God be merciful and accept this payment and set sinners free? The disciples don't know. Peter, you read in other Gospels, Peter's gone back to fishing. The women doubt it. When they return to the grave, they're bringing embalming spices and sweet-smelling spices to cover the smell of death. There's no sign that God's justice has been satisfied. There's no indication that his mercy has come to sinners in those three days. There's just a silent tomb and bored guards given the duty of watching over a dead man. But when the women do return, when that third day dawns, the justice and mercy of God are delivered to a waiting universe. Matthew 28, now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, come see the place where he lay. The resurrection is the revelation to the women. The resurrection is the revelation to the disciples, to his followers, to us, to the universe, that God in his goodness has said yes. The resurrection delivers Jesus back to us with all his glory, all his humanity, all his deity, all his authority, all of his promises intact. And as Jesus returns to us from the resurrection, he pulls us along in the train of his righteousness. And the other thing the resurrection accomplishes, remember the court scene. Right? Remember what's going on in terms of God's justice being done and in his judgment over the universe. With Jesus resurrected, he returns and pulls us along in his righteousness, those that believe in him, and he returns to be our advocate in that court. He's seated at the right hand. He's our lawyer. And so when we 
think that we are accused by our sin when our enemy, the devil, Satan, our adversary points and says to God, you need to be just, God. You need to take care of these sinners. Jesus is there and he says he has. It's done. You have no accusation that stands against this. This child of mine is free. All the debt has been paid. There is no condemnation. And so the resurrection is the sign to us. It's the sign to the universe. It's the sign to powers and principalities that God has said, yes, my justice is satisfied. And yes, my mercy is perfectly shown. And Paul hooks this all back to the mercy of God in Ephesians, writing in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, resurrected us together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what the resurrection does. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God that he is faithful. Praise God that he is just. Praise God that he is merciful and that he has made his mercy and justice known to us through his son, Jesus. You see, reconciling justice and mercy is not a problem for God. God is justice and God is mercy. Your sin and the penalty that your sin demands and the barrier that your sin is between you and God's love is also not a problem for God. God has a solution for his justice and God has a solution for your sin. Or rather, better stated, God is the solution for his justice and God is the solution for your sin. All we have to do is let God be God. Just just letting God be God sorts it all out. And all his attributes, if we just let God be God in our life, all of his attributes become for you and not against you. His justice is for you and his mercy is for you. His love is for you. And even his wrath at wickedness will be for you. There is no attribute of God that we need fear if we are participants in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what was accomplished at Easter. Let's pray. Father God, We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are both just and merciful. We thank you that you don't have any conflict in this, that this is not a problem for you. You've spelled it out for us and shown us your love, shown us your mercy, and shown us your justice in the exact same place on the cross of Jesus Christ. And then you said, just in case you're wondering, just in case you doubt my promises, I'll just raise Jesus from the dead. You will see Jesus resurrected, high and lifted up. He's seated at my right hand. He is your advocate. You will, I will seat you with him if you believe in him. Father, you are so good and so merciful to us that we stumble along completely unaware of what you are doing in the universe, what your plans are for humanity, and from before the foundation of the world, you already intended to be God. And there is nothing we do or don't do that won't stop you from being God. And we put all our hope and all our trust and all our faith and all our joy and all of our satisfaction in the reality that you are relentlessly going to be God and will never stop being God. 
and that being God, you are just and you are merciful to all who call out on you and put their hope in your name and in Jesus Christ. You are just and you are merciful. We give you thanks for that today in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.